everything is like a flow between the cultures and people, it's natural. People have contact with each other and, and they pick up something from each other. And if they enjoy it, you know, it puts a smile on their face. Welcome to Belly Dance Live podcast. My name is Jana Komarnitska. I'm a full-time dancer based in Toronto, performing a variety of Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance styles, including belly dance. You can find me at janadance.com as well as on Insta or Facebook by Jana Dance or Jana Komarnitska. I'm happy you've decided to join us for this weekly dose of dance inspiration because here on this podcast we explore all nuances and insights into lifestyle of ballet dancers and we are having amazing star guests who share their stories secrets and tips with you this episode is brought to you by my inner dancer a dream store for all ballet dancers with all the variety of things that they host you can definitely find there not only perfect options for amazing ballet dance gifts for your friends but also a very nice and cute treats for yourself don't forget to check them at myinnerdancer.com Hello everyone, welcome to podcast and I'm so thrilled to press publish button right now to release this episode because we have amazing Tamalin Dalal. This woman has incredible dance career, you just name it. I think she did absolutely everything possible in dance field, but something tells me that there is still a lot of things uh, to come from her and some of her current projects you will also hear on this podcast, but uh, in her 42-year dance career, Tamalin was performing for big stars. She was mentoring some other like dance stars that we know to get today. But also she traveled all across the world and one of her most famous <laughs> trip period was uh, uh, documented in her book uh, 40 Days and 1001 Nights about her explorations of five different Islamic countries. And in this interview, we talked about so many very, very different topics and all of them are so important to have discussion about and hear each other experience, starting from political and social things happening in the U.S. after 9-11 events and uh, Tamalin's exploration of... Uh, uh, Islamic countries and her uh, travel and exploration not only as a dancer but just as a person and seeing how this uh, artificial division between us and them doesn't really exist that uh, it's a completely different lifestyles but at the same time we share all the same uh, values also, we talked about her amazing experiments with uh, Zanzibar Orchestra and this is one of the topics that I was dying to ask her because I saw a long time ago one of her performances to mesmerizing a music composition and I just know, she I remember she mentioned that it was recorded by Zanzibar Orchestra but in this interview you'll get to hear uh, much more about that amazing experiments and in general we talked a lot about important things that are happening in ballet dance community now and how it's so important to remember that dance exists to unite and to bring joy and it's not really the space to have any hatred messages to each other or divisions or judgments like yeah we may not agree with each other's choices or have our personal opinions or, or preferences but at the same time Let's create a space for everyone to be able to express whatever they want to express. And is, wouldn't it be just beautiful to showcase our own values to each other by just doing what we believe in and instead of uh, trying to sort of judge or uh, poke on each other. Like, everyone has place to exist and we just need to respect uh, each other and then uh, 
the nice things will flourish by their own. That's my strong belief in it. And uh, I hope this interview just will make you think about many important uh, things. I really sincerely hope that we can have Tamaline back on the uh, podcast because we touched just a very, very, very small part of her dance experience. And there is so much more that uh, this amazing woman can tell and share. But uh, for now, I hope you will enjoy this uh, conversation. Uh, let me know your thoughts, your opinions. And also don't forget to send uh, warm vibes to our guests as a little appreciation for their time and willingness to share their amazing experiences with us. But before we dive in the interview, I just want to give a quick uh, thank you to Validance Evolution for supporting our podcast call to all dancers who are looking to improve their dance skills. Belladance Evolution, directed by Jelena, is starting a bunch of new programs catered to dancers at every level, such as Jelena's BD Experience, Community Classes in Los Angeles, and Jelena's BD Retreat. Also, for those who are in Sydney in March, don't miss their performance of Phantasm 1001 Nights on March 9th, 2019, because it's going to be an unforgettable night. You can find information about all this and more at their website, balladanceevolution.com. Hello, Damaline. How are you? I'm so, so happy that uh, you are here. I'm very excited about our conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. I would like to start by digging back to the very, very beginning, because you had quite a fascinating a career so far, and it's, there will be a lot of more things it's coming. Only 43 years. <laughs> yeah, but there, I'm sure there will be more yeah. things uh, coming up. But I'm very excited to talk about many things that you have accomplished and you worked on. But to start with, uh, I know that you started ballet dance class at the age of uh, 17 and it was at university. Do mm -hmm. you remember the feelings and impressions that you had during your very first ballet dance class? Okay, well, before that, I had done some Persian dancing. And mm. I, dance wasn't very easy for me. I had done different kinds of dance, but, you know, it wasn't easy for me at all. And I always had trouble with the shoulders. I don't know why. Shoulders and head slides. And so when I went to the belly dance class, I remember one of the things is she, it was a teacher named Nadia at the University of Washington um, Experimental College. And she had her troop class or a, a very advanced class right afterwards. And so I knew Arabic music. I had a lot of Arabic music. And, but I had no idea even what belly dancing was. I never saw it. So I followed the classes and the hips weren't too hard as I remember, but the upper body was really hard for me. And, um, I was a little intimidated because, you know, when you can't get something and your body just won't move that way, that was one of my feelings. But then another feeling is seeing the troop. And that was back in 1976. They, um, I remember, I don't remember all of them, but I remember one, she went to class with a coin bra and belt in this chiffon circle skirt, like full costume and with huge finger symbols. And she was doing floor work and, you know, the back bends while playing finger symbols and all this stuff that just looked so foreign and so impossible. And that impressed me. Like I couldn't imagine I would ever do anything like that. And for your previous training of Persian dance, I didn't know that actually you, you studied Persian dance uh, before, prior to ballet dance. Uh, do you feel that these dance styles are connected in any way? Did your Persian experience, dance experience helped you in some way in your ballet yeah. dance training? Well, over the years, I'm still not an advanced Persian dancer, but, you know, um, over the years that I've taken workshops and taken classes and stuff like that, One thing I noticed, when people do Persian dance, their wrists loosen up. Their wrists get relaxed so they can move their wrists individually from, I mean, separately from their hands. And it really, really helps your hands, your hands and arms to do Persian. And mm -hmm. um, at the beginning, I didn't 
my Persian dance classes weren't really professional. It was just like local people from the community because there were a lot of Iranians. I was in the east side of Seattle at that time, and it was before the revolution or anything, and lots of Iranians were were there to uh, for the jobs, like or they had something going on with Boeing and different companies. So um, it was just local people from the community. If I understood correctly, you were encouraged or inspired to travel for the first time, uh, relate, I mean, travel related to dance. Uh, then you still had some office job? It was not from the very beginning of your dance yeah. <laughs> training. Yeah. I was working as um, doing social work with refugees. Mm-hmm. And I um, met this woman who came to do some temporary office work, and she was an opera singer. And she had traveled all over the world singing because she also sang in 18 languages. She sang, like, traditional songs. So she got on these cruise ships, and she even worked in nightclubs. She had a comedy routine with because she looked like this big blonde opera singer, and then she would do comedy. Mm-hmm. On top of that. And so it was, it got her around the world. And so um, she, she thought, oh, I would always have a belly dance costume on my desk that I would be beading because back then you had to sew every single little bead mm-hmm. and sequin and stone onto your bra and belt. So I would be beading and each costume would take from one to six months. And she saw what I was beading and she told me she knew a belly dancer on the cruise ship circuit. And she talked about her travels, and she taught me how to get into the business, introduced me to some agents. And back then, it was Miami Beach, and there were a lot of elderly Jewish people that would come down and stay in these hotels, these old hotels for the winter. And they would have Jewish entertainment for them. And so she sang in, um, she also sang in Yiddish and Hebrew. And her song, I mean, that was really beautiful. And so she took me, started taking me to her hotel shows, and she would just have a piano player, her, and me. So she would be singing all these different songs, and then she would go into the show tunes, and it was some of the movie songs and Broadway songs, such as um, from Exodus or from Kismet. And we would do these little tableaus where we would have like bubbles, bangles, and beads from Kismet or something from Exodus. And then um, I would dance to, the piano player would play Mizulu because mm-hmm. every piano player knew that, and I would dance to that. And then she'd play Hava Nagila, and I'd belly dance out in the audience, and then I'd get people up dancing, you know, the folk, folk dance Hava Nagila. And, well, they were really old. I don't know how many of them jumped around like that, but... That was like in the 1980s, early 1980s. That was my showbiz start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting to hear the difference because you basically was doing some sort of like contracts and cruises and uh, uh, entertainment, but it was more in uh, America, North and South America in the beginning. Uh, during your career, had you worked on the contract, something like this, but in the Middle Eastern? Because I know you perform a lot at the festivals. No, but, mm. no, no, never. Um, actually, I didn't even know about that. I don't think that would have been very suitable for my personality. Um, I was very rebellious, rebellious back then. And so if I went to the Middle East, like I just read Zena Brown's new book, Fire in the mm-hmm. Belly. It's amazing. She tells it like it is, you know. And because I've known people that worked in the clubs in the Middle East And I've heard about, you know, the two different agents. I've heard about those stories, but that she wrote it down. I mean, that's, it's amazing. She shared it with us. Um, That would not have been for me. I would have probably been in trouble, thrown out in no time flat. I would not have, you know, stuck around my hotel. I would have been in people's houses. I would have been, you know, I don't know. It would not have worked. It's much better that I went to South America. Yeah, Zaina, we just had her two episodes before on the podcast uh, talking about uh, her book. Mm. Very, very interesting. 
and uh, uh, eyes open and read for everyone who is interested in contracts in the Middle East. Uh, but also she was mentioning one of the things because then I was reading the book, I was like, oh my God, why why you keep doing it? Like, it's like a disaster after disaster, problem after problem. Like, why would you keep doing it? And then she was joking that, yeah, like the those uh, um, tricky situations, that's what makes this story interesting. But she was like, oh, there is a lot of good stuff too. It's just like then it's nice and everything smooth it's kind of boring to write about it <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh that's true yeah uh, but uh, anyway um if anyone who is listening now haven't heard that podcast just go back it's literally two two podcasts uh, before that um but anyway you did travel to Middle East and uh, oh, actually, before yeah. we dive into that, uh, I was really surprised that the very first book about your travels was about your first experience. If I again, if I understand it correctly, and it was composed by your sister, Bev. Yeah, yeah, because that then I had no interest in writing a book, but um, my family. A lot of people in my family write. My brother um, started it all because he wrote a lot of books and was an editor. And then my sister, like I had all my travel journals, and my sister's like, we have to do something with these. And she planned on doing three books. Um, and, you know, she didn't realize how marginalized belly dance is. She just thought, we're going to put your travel journals in Columbia together, and we're going to sell these and people are going to buy this book like crazy. And then um, we're always, there's, by the mainstream society, there's always a discrimination, a bit of discrimination against belly dance. So it wasn't easy for her to push this. Like she would push it and then, you know, she'd get the books in a bookstore and then they hide them on a back mm. shelf. Or I don't know if you've experienced this, but I still experience that people have issues about the concept of belly dancing. I don't even think they know what it is. They're just like, they have issues, the mainstream society. And we're like, hey, it's not, I mean, people don't even have issues with burlesque anymore. And they still, you know, when I say I do belly dancing, honestly, almost every day I get eye rolls and, you know, weird reactions to this day. It's quite amazing. So my sister had to deal with all that, and she's like, you know, she ended up not not putting together the other books, but she did an amazing job with the first one. And it's it has very catchy uh, title. It's uh, they told me I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it basically yeah. describes the nature of uh, many ballad and stories. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think belly dancers. I mean, we're we're a special group. <laughs> we're very interested. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, you also mentioned something a very interesting point that uh, people don't like, not even accept. Like they have some issues, uh, very uh, often even unconsciously, with accepting ballet dance as something serious. And then I was doing my research. Mm -hmm. I. Uh, got on one point I was like oh my god I'm really curious to ask you this question <laughs> and specific on this topic because then you opened school you also were applying for grants to support your activities did you mm -hmm. ever have a problem of getting those grants because of belly dance <laughs> for the first for seven yeah I never called it belly dance when I applied for grants I called it middle eastern dance which works even more against us these days. I tried using Middle Eastern dance for a while now, and it was just not, you know, then there's another layer of prejudice. So, but back then in the 90s, um, I tried for seven years, didn't, couldn't get a grant, and um, I knew all the grant people, and I, I was told, like, I remember one of the administrators said, like, I, I had my school, I had many, many kinds of dance at my first school. And I had a children's program. And there were a lot of poor kids in the neighborhood. And I was like, they're taking, we're giving free classes. And any family that can afford it can pay $3. It goes directly to the teacher. That was around 1990, 91. So I thought, let's get a grant. And um, 
so I went to the to the cultural arts council or whatever it was called in Miami back then, and the lady told me she said if you take belly are you take yeah I think I said belly dancing if you take belly dancing out and just have the yoga jazz and acting that you I had then you could probably get funding but we won't fund anything that has belly dancing and I'm like this is a really valid free program for kids and they've been doing it for a while like you know they were it, it was such a good thing and still they I mean they it was just the name of the dance. It's incredible. And so um, then finally, after seven years, there was a woman who was part of my dance troupe. Her name was Hanan. And now, and she really knows how to work within the system. I mean, she's brilliant. She said, let me write the grant. And so she wrote a grant for this big theater show. It was the first theater show I ever did. It was called Emerald Dream. And we got the grant for $5,000 to help out. You know, most of, most of our expenses were covered with ticket sales because it sold out too. But after we got that grant, then I wrote for grants every year and we kept getting more and more and more for theater shows, for festivals, for everything. I mean, one year, I think we got $30,000 between the city and the county. And then you can only spend it on your programming. So I was so busy with programming, you know, and productions and all this stuff, but it was amazing. And so, but it, it's really a big hurdle to overcome. And um, I, you know, I've been grappling. I've always, all my life, I've grappled with the name belly dance. And how I've finally come to terms with it is, and this is kind of jumping around right now because it's going to jump to the present. Um, I live in New Orleans now. And belly dancing used to be really big here. And there's very few teachers, the ones that are here now, they are very good. Um, And there's a few performers and they're very good, but there's not many. and whenever I would say I do belly dancing, people equate it with burlesque. And I'm like turning 60. It's kind of like, they're like, oh, she takes her clothes off. And I'm thinking, do we never get over this? Okay. So then um, I started just calling it Middle Eastern dance because I thought, okay, directly in the Middle East, especially in Turkey, they call it Oriental. I don't know how to pronounce it, but they have that special spelling. And in Egypt, they Mm -hmm. call it Raksharki. That's all oriental dance. But then then there's the issue that, you know, some people are like, oh, orientalism and, and, you know, that colonialism, all that stuff. I'm like, well, why am I going to bother to call it oriental dance and then explain to people it's belly dancing? And then somebody will come along and have an issue about both of them. So next thing, I'm calling it Middle Eastern dance. And, you know, then it's like, oh, the Middle East. Uh. And then, well, what kind of dance from the Middle East? That's a big place. So I'm just like, I got, came on this idea of just putting the fun, you know, promoting belly dance in a really fun way and just calling it belly dance and making it fun. Because if I remember back when I started belly dancing, it was celebratory and it was fun and people would circumcise their baby and and have a belly dancer and they would get married and have a belly dancer and have a birthday and a belly dancer. I'm like, well, let's go back to the fun. So I'm writing a children's book. I wrote it. We're just finishing the production of it now. It's it's called The Belly Dancing Kitties of Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And it takes place in New Orleans because we have a street called Constantinople Street. And it's there's this artist in Japan. She's also a dancer. Her name is Ayako Date. And her, I mean, the art sells itself. And so the story is fun, especially for everybody that likes cats and belly dancing. And the artwork is amazing. So it could be very mainstream. And people are not going to be thinking, ooh, burlesque, ooh, you know, whatever they're thinking and rolling their eyes. They have little kitties belly dancing around, you know. It 
who can argue against that? <laughs> so I put the, so I'm just like, forget it. I'm using the name belly dancing and just having fun with it. Uh, it's such an amazing idea with your book. I can't wait to, to see it, uh, hopefully soon. Oh, thanks. But mm -hmm. It'll come out in April. Oh, great. So very soon. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. But regarding grants, uh, like I didn't experience it yet fully for myself, but in Canada we also have a great system of grants supporting all kind of arts and uh, it's just amazing how, how much they support it. But uh, a lot of ballet dancers have trouble exactly what you just described. And mm. I know a lot of people who do amazing work, but they don't even bother to apply for those grants because mm -hmm. it's like what's the reason like it's bad as they will not sponsor so it's just a few very few people here can benefit uh, and uh, uh, got that vibe that <laughs> that they are looking for to, to actually receive funding for those things but you know what I I disagree with saying why bother because um there's people I know Toronto and how the scene has some really some real pioneers there. Um, and they've opened the door for belly dancing to get funding, whatever name they're using for it. But um, so it's not like they've never funded belly dancing. Mm -hmm. The first hurdle is going into a place where they've never considered belly dance art. And so a lot of people may, like when I lived in Seattle, a lot of people didn't bother as well to apply for grants. But if you don't bother, you're guaranteed you're not going to get a grant. If you have a concept that you really believe in, I think you should apply. And um, if you can present it is in a way that will be, you know, understood by the grant panel and that they can see that, that it has value, I think nobody should give up before they start. So true. So true. Coming back to your activities and uh, your uh, book specifically, one of the most uh, favorite work uh, that uh, you put out in the world is your book uh, 40 Days and 1001 Nights, uh, which yeah. was also based on your traveling experience. But now we are talking about Middle East travels. And it was uh, your mm -hmm. travel was sort of a response to political and um, social things that were going on in the U.S. at that time. Yeah. Can you, can you expand a little bit on, on that? Okay. Well, after 9-11, well, okay, I'll start with before 9-11, you know, I was, I mean, I was doing Middle Eastern dance. I was a belly dancer. I was with, I was in the Middle Eastern community, you know, dancing for all their parties and all this stuff. Um, a lot of Middle Eastern friends, and then 9-11 happened, <laughs> excuse me, and um, suddenly there was all this, like, them and us type of thing, and especially at that time, Bush, I remember his quote one day, and he, when he went into Iraq, decided to attack Iraq, and he said they did it to us in 9-11, I'm like, Iraqis didn't do anything in 9-11, and it's just they, it's this big they. And, um, and I thought, you know, I want to do something about this. I want to, not that maybe it didn't do anything about to change it, but um, I want to, I want to do something to, sh and find out for myself what's going on as well. So um, by 2005, the end of 2005, I decided I was just going to take a leap of faith, um, leave everything behind in Miami, which was a huge leap of faith, and um, travel to five different Muslim countries for 40 days each. And, of course, I had been going to Asia to teach dance a lot, for, you know, for several years already. So I said, okay, but I, at first I said, I'll go to Malaysia you know, because I've taught workshops there and stuff. And when I wrote to these ladies, I was really going to cop out. I was going to go to 
live with these rich ladies. They're called Datin. They're very close to the royalty. And they're like, sure, you can come live with us for 40 days and we'll show you what life is like. And then they said, not those dates that you have in mind because Ramadan falls in those dates and we can't have a belly dancer in our house during Ramadan. I said, oh, you know, and then I'd been reading about Indonesia. I really had no idea how vast Indonesia was. You know, I kind of thought of Bali and I'm like, Indonesia is the most populous Islamic country, mm-hmm. primarily Islamic country. And Bali is Hindu, so that doesn't represent Indonesia. And I, I'm just like, I still hadn't even decided where I was going. I flew to Singapore. I was going to have a workshop in Singapore after my 40 days. And I left my suitcase with one of the dancers in Singapore. And I'm, I'm like, I'm off. I guess I'm not going to Malaysia. I'm turning around and going to Indonesia. And I took the boat there. And I hadn't, I hadn't researched it. So thank goodness I met really nice and really helpful people. Um, but And they were the ones that really encouraged me. If I had gotten to some place where they didn't understand my project or didn't want me writing about them, I might have given up early. But in Indonesia, they motivated me so much mm. that, you know, then I went to different places like the Siwa Oasis of Egypt, um, Jordan, Zanzibar, the Xinjiang Autonomous Region of China, and each place was so vastly different. I mean, and I was like, I I forgot about why I started to go there because I was like, at the beginning, I was like, I'm going to find out if this stuff on the news is real. And then once I got over to these countries, I'm like, you know, I forgot about what's on the news in America because I'm into their lives. And it's a totally different reality. Mm. It's life, you know, everyday life. I got interesting question right now because in those uh, peak moments of the separation, us and they and nine eleven and all those things, uh, I would assume that a lot of Americans would be scared to even consider going to the Middle East. Uh, probably emphasized by the media, propaganda, and like whatever, everything was happening. What uh, gave you sort of courage just to leave everything and go on your own travel to Middle East? And uh, uh, what didn't you, um, I'm trying to to phrase it (laughs) nicely, but like not fall in the... trap of thinking that as an American you have extremely high level of being in dangerous situation in the Middle East? First of all, I didn't know whether to believe it or not. I'm not going to know whether to believe it or not until I see what it's like. And, um, I mean, maybe I did have a lot of audacity to even think I could do this, but it's not like... I just felt like it's something I should do. I didn't question it. Do you think uh, your connection to Baladance helped you to relate more to those cultures and sort of question if you actually should believe or not what you see uh, in media in U.S. at that time? Um, yeah, I think so, because I had known so many people from the Middle East even though when I went to Indonesia, it wasn't the Middle East. It was a totally new ballgame. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness it was with nice, amazing people. Yeah, I love Indonesians. Um, but, yeah, I, I think being a belly dancer did make me say, wait a minute. I think part of it was, I was thinking, it's not right. I'm hearing these things. And if the things people were saying on TV or whatever were true... That would mean that everything that I've seen and felt and experienced in my dance life for so many years is not true. Mm. And I'm like, which is it? And I was open to the idea that I may have been wrong all, all along. I was like, well, yeah, you know, maybe there are, maybe there are these horrible people or maybe, you know, it could be a lot of, Things that I don't know, but I was open to to that. But 
what I found was totally different. It was different from the people that I had known in my dance life because, of course, you know, I was in these countries with the real people that oftentimes, you know, were like lower economic category. They had never left their country. They maybe more humble, um, but it wasn't, you know, the they were really amazing people. Mm. I mean, my my eyes just opened up to a whole new world. Yeah, and it just came into my mind another really valuable point from what you said is how much the culture and art can can unite us and relate us and uh, delete these uh, uh, borders that um, basically made... Uh, Uh, artificially <laughs> between like cultures oh it's my culture mm-hmm. oh it's your culture like if you start digging more into the art and cultures of each other then there is much more understanding and appreciation on a more like social human like level and uh, then uh, i strongly believe then then sometimes uh, i think all uh, um Uh, let's say foreign ballet dancers from time to time you either see articles or receive messages and like oh this is not your culture why you do it i was questioned like why not because if you start learning and seeking each other cultures then it can eliminate a lot of problems in the world just because we start understanding each other better <laughs> and like your story is one of the oh, proofs that's very true <laughs> um, yeah i mean if we dance together how can we fight you know i it's You, you're really right. And um, I, it's only recently in the last, maybe since 2014, that people really, in, inside the belly dance community, they post stuff on Facebook that's so judgmental toward one another and toward what we do. And There's something called respect. And we have a lot of different opinions. A lot of changing opinions, a lot of changing information, a lot of emotion. And sometimes, you know, it can be really confusing for everybody in this dance world. There is not one way to think. There is not one path to follow. We each have to look at the different angles and find what we feel is right. And, um, for example... Somebody dresses up like a chocolate bar and goes out there and belly dances. I've seen it. Okay, I can't say that that's hurting anybody, you know. Maybe I didn't really want to see it, but it's not hurting anyone. But then somebody dances to the call to prayer or they dance to... I haven't really seen anybody do that, but I have seen somebody dance to a song that was about a national tragedy. Okay. They need to be talked to, not on a public forum, but if you know what that song is about, you have more information. You can talk directly one-on-one in private. That person is far more likely to listen to you than if you put it on a forum and everybody is like, that's wrong, that's wrong, she did something wrong. And of course, you know, that person will tune out or they'll stop dancing Or they'll find themselves in a crowd of people that says, we don't care what anybody thinks. So what did that accomplish? I think we need to look at, if we're going to look at, you know, what we should and shouldn't do, we should look at solutions. And one of the solutions can be sharing articles, especially sharing articles that are logical Um, and factual, and well-researched, yeah, share articles. Not everybody's going to read them. But social change happens slowly. It happens gradually, little by little. It doesn't happen by yelling at each other. In Sometimes online it looks like yelling at each other, you know, but it happens by by discussing by respecting that you're talking to a fellow human being 
that has a different set of information than you do. So like agree, 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 <laughs> thousand times <laughs> like even and even on another uh, level, what I feel uh, like even talking to like this recently, like literally these days, there are some. Uh, um, trying to shame each other and like costume choices etc mm-hmm. which also fascinates me on another level like how we as women are very quick and fast on shaming someone else on like and what rights do we have to blame each other how every single of us wants to express her sensuality and how wants to present her body it's like it's very mm-hmm. interesting like even a few hundreds Hundred years ago, we didn't have any rights and voice to decide anything in our life or what to do with our like uh, body or mm. like. Do, and now, like in two thousand nineteen, it's back. <laughs> yes, and we are doing it yeah, to it's ourselves. Back and we're doing it to ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, I'm always like going through phases, and I kind of do like a different phase every year. Last year, I had this phase of using these little scarves, like the little scarves that they use for kids' dance class, and using them in my shows. And I'm like, I'm going to keep this up for a year and see what I can do with these. So, you know, I was doing that and wearing evening dresses and using scarves. This year, it's Belody. Like, I'm even going back to cane dancing and all that stuff. And um, do you know? I I think it's fun to just float around and experiment with the different different possibilities of costuming of dance. Yeah, and uh, even like uh, simply to respect each other's choice is like we are all adults and uh, uh, we do our own choices, and we may not agree or like something, but it's like who who I am to to discuss or to 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 give a set of rules of how it should be especially in the such uh, in the arts art art um, space is like uh, anyway it's quite of uh, interesting and very i mean there is no right or wrong answer i think here so it's just interesting to discuss and and hear different opinions <laughs> so thanks for sharing yeah. Th- thanks for sharing and I think- yeah, and I think we, as dancers, we need to be kind and respectful to one another. Because otherwise, we're just going to tear apart the community and it'll be smaller and smaller until it dwindles, dwindles away. You know, well, it won't dwindle away because belly dance refuses to go away. Um, but, you know, we just need to be kind and respectful. And like you were saying, it's like, who are we to ch- decide to judge other people's choices. Coming back to uh, your travel experience of that uh, 40 days mm-hmm. journey through uh, different Islamic countries uh, and regions, how did that experience change your understanding of uh, the culture, the dance, and if it actually influenced your belly dancing in, in any way? I'm sure it is, oh, but... it influenced a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I... Okay, I wrote the book, and then I kept going back to a lot of the places. Um, well, I went back to Zanzibar many times over the period of five years, and I did music projects and a film project and so forth. Um, I went to Siwa many, many times, because I would do this, like, go to a festival in Egypt, go visit Siwa. A lot of times I would bring a group of women with me and then I would go to Zanzibar and do some filming or recording. Um, Zanzibar was a big influence on me. And from Zanzibar, you know, every time you go out to the waterfront, you see these dows. They're the old boats that ply the waters of the Indian Ocean. And so, of course, it gets your imagination going. Like those dows for centuries have been going to the Arabian Peninsula, they've been going to India, going across all the way to Indonesia. And so that stayed in my mind, and then the sights and sounds and smells of Zanzibar. And then when I traveled to other places, like I went to Oman, I went to, you know, of course, Indonesia repeatedly. Um, I went to Kerala in India, and I could 
feel that these are all connected. You know, I, I was like, wow, it's, we're really connected. We're so far away, but we're still in the same place in one way or another. And then um, on the other hand, there's the Silk Road, you know. So in China, where I've worked a lot, they call the, the Indian Ocean Spice Route, the, the Maritime Spice Route, they call it um, the Silk Road by Sea. And then the Silk Road that goes from Turkey and Syria into China and back, that's the Silk Road by land. And I haven't been to many places in Central Asia, but I've been to Western China, to Xinjiang. And I'm like, okay, there's all these connections, the Silk Road by land, the Silk Road by sea, the, um, and then all the different, different political things, like the different empires over the centuries. And I'm like, everybody is so connected, and you can feel it. To me, the first place you feel it is through the music. Because there's always some common thread in the music. Mm-hmm. And actually, you, al- you always find some, something to do with belly dancing in each place. It might not be in a belly dance costume, but there, every place I went is familiar. Even Indonesia, like I met a singer, and she's Indonesian, but she sings in Arabic. And her husband is Yemeni, and they have one of the cultures that has really traveled a lot in the Indian Ocean are the Yemenis. And they have Yemeni people for like several generations all up and down the east coast of Africa, and in Indonesia they do as well. So I've spent time with Yemeni people in Zanzibar and in Indonesia. I was with my friend that's a singer, and we went to Yemeni parties that Either her husband played music, if it was traditional Yemeni, or they would have her sing and sing like the Lebanese pop songs and so forth. So I saw like both the modern, you know, that, you know, the whole Arab world, they love the Lebanese and Egyptian pop songs. Um, And she in particular was singing mostly Lebanese songs. And she would have me get up and belly dance for the Yemenis. Mm -hmm. And they're very, very conservative. Um, so I had to be covered. I actually wore the traditional, uh, some traditional Indonesian clothes um, and these beautiful beaded jackets that, I mean, that was kind of her choice, you know, and they loved it. It was, well, it was women's parties, you know, and they really loved it. And then, um, so I, I felt like, okay, here I am belly dancing for Yemeni people while somebody's an Indonesian woman is singing Lebanese songs and I'm in Indonesia. And then it's just like, it's just like a circle or maybe a figure eight of how the cultures just keep blending. And it's not like you can separate and be like, well, they're Yemeni. Why do they like belly dancing? Belly dancing is Egyptian. That's so square. They just like belly dancing because they do and they're familiar. And um, it's just, everything is like a flow between the cultures. And people, it's natural. People have contact with each other and and they pick up something from each other. And if they enjoy it, you know, it puts a smile on their face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think there's too much emphasis on separation these days especially you know sometimes in our dance community like oh but that's not it that's not right this is this is from here and this is from there and over there they don't they're not that picky they're just like we like it we do it yeah this uh, separation i don't even know how to say it mode is very unfortunate and very sad like uh, that happens uh, these days in uh, in the world um but i believe in 2012 i saw your performance uh, uh, in toronto at international balance conference canada and you were playing amazing music And I believe it was a song from uh, 
Rimsky Korsakov Ballet Shahrazada. Okay. But yeah, it was. Yes. <laughs> Tell that story because it's amazing. Yeah, you can get it on iTunes. Yeah. It's from one of my projects. Um, it's a CD called Made in Zanzibar. I don't have any more left, but they are on iTunes. Um, and so for Made in Zanzibar, I thought of my friend at the beginning when I started belly dancing, her name, you know, the woman who sang in 18 languages and would take me around to the hotels. And she taught me a lot about classical music. And actually, sometimes we'd even, she'd have me dance to Scheherazade and La Habanera from Carmen. Um, we had a little skit to that. And um, I remembered those classical songs. Also, I had danced to um, Dance Bacchanal by Samson and Delilah for the for a symphony in Miami that they had. It was the Florida Philharmonic Symphony. They, they don't exist anymore. But I had years later been asked to dance to that song. So out of these, I thought, you know, I'd like to have like a fusion of classical music with Middle Eastern instruments played by Zanzibari musicians, because the Zanzibaris they have like a different feeling from from the Egyptians. Um, so I had this idea. I wrote to a friend of mine, and we decided to do it. But nobody had ever heard these classical songs. Mm -hmm. So what was interesting is how it was filtered into a totally different society, and. Um, it was it was fascinating because they mixed in taxines. They they put their own spin on it. And at the beginning, like I had been teaching in Malaysia, and then this was back in 2008. And you know they were practicing, but they were pretty puzzled because the director he wrote musical notes, but nobody else could read the notes. So it was played by ear, and they played their own music. So. When I got there, I got to Zanzibar, and it sounded really bad. And everybody was, their spirits were really low. They're like, we don't understand what this is about. And a lot of the musicians were friends of mine. And, and so what I did is I hired a cook to come in and cook them a lot of food. We would do rehearsals all day. And um, sometimes the director would say, Tamalin, come out and dance so that we can have some energy. And then we just kept working on it for two weeks. And then it came together. And so we finally recorded it. And that was, that song was one of the results of that recording. And it was very, it was very experimental for Zanzibar. And there was another song, um, it's called A Rainy Day in Zanzibar. And it was a mixture of a, typical Zanzibari song that had been composed, I don't know, sometime in the 50s or 60s or 70s, I'm not sure, and with canon in D. And so that song had a, a special history too because, you know, I brought canon in D and they're like, well, we have, they're used to long songs, like, like 10 minutes long. And so um, they put some taxine, they put one of their typical songs. Well, in Zanzibar, of course, you know, you need to make sure the composers are okay with what you're doing with their music. So the composer was not alive anymore, but his wife was alive. So I remember it was such an island experience. We, me and my friend go to her house. We, we like call up and she's upstairs and she puts the key on a string and puts it over the balcony. So we get it and we come upstairs in this like high, high staircase in the old Arabic house. And she serves us coffee and listens to what we have to say and gives us her blessing and finds a little paper that we can, you know, use this snippet of her husband's song and we're all happy. And then that song became really popular in Zanzibar and the president asked that group that I was working with, Ikhwan Safa, to play that song in one of his ceremonies. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And the little boy on the cover, the little boy 
was my neighbor when I was writing the book. He was the cutest little boy you can imagine. And the little girl on the back was the daughter of the woman that used to sell cassava chips downstairs from where I lived when I was writing the book. Oh my God, this is an amazing story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I also heard that you produced basically two CDs with Zanzibar's orchestra. And yeah. someone also had reflected that it's basically was uh, Zanzibar's version of classical songs, uh, mostly. But someone also reflected that it sounded Chinese. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, actually, um, the, the Made in Zanzibar with the classical interpretation, that was um, the second CD. Mm. The first CD was... Um, music from Zanzibar's golden age from the 50s to the 70s because their golden age came a little after Egypt's golden age and um, it was like some were called what they called Bashraf. Bashraf is the instrumental beginnings of a concert so they'll play an instrumental song and the Bashraf that they played they're really danceable and I was I loved them And so then they said, well, we'll take some of our songs that usually are sung. They're tarab songs. And they, East African tarab is a little different from Egyptian tarab. They spell it T-A-R-A-A-B. But um, they're Zanzibari tarab songs. And we'll just take out the singing and make them danceable by putting in some taxims or restructuring them for belly dancing. So that's what they did. That was my first CD. And that one was the challenging part about that one was there were no, the only recording studio that there was that first year was um, a hip hop studio with two microphones. So there were 10 musicians who would have to situate them around the microphones in the right way that, I mean, they should have had their own microphones. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. And the editing equipment was very, very simple. And it was a huge challenge. And then if they made a mistake anywhere in the song, they would have to play it over again. That because the editing equipment was too simple to handle any other way. And um, so that was a challenge. Some tempers flared because the owner of the studio would start putting his two cents in and then the director of the orchestra is like I don't want to listen to you and we played it too many times and I'm just sitting there going oh my god and now I don't speak Swahili to to get in there and you know calm things down which I did manage you know when things got really difficult to just be like okay guys you know this is I, I mean the, the it was a challenge let's put it that way But after that CD came out, that's when I got really close to the musicians. And every time I went back to Zanzibar, like they were like my brothers. Mm. Well, I can only imagine uh, recording music without uh, proper equipment. It it sometimes can be a nightmare. Even with the proper equipment, it's really challenging to record a CD. But if it's uh, mm-hmm. also not speaking language that you can communicate <laughs> to musicians, also not having two mics for ten musicians, like uh, if I tell my friends musicians here in Toronto this story, they was like, uh, "You're joking!" Let's <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 out of imaginary <laughs> possibility, even. <laughs> um, yeah. Tamalin, I feel I can talk to you hours and hours and hours. You're just like the treasure of wisdom and experiences. Uh, but before you sort of wrap up uh, uh, today's conversation, I also want to bring attention of dancers that you produced also two movies, uh, Zanzibar mm-hmm. Dance, Trance and Devotion and Ethiopian Dance for Joy, Dances for Joy, which I feel these yeah. areas, these Geographical areas are kind of out of attention for most of the ballet dancers, which is unfortunate. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those movies and uh, if they're available anywhere that dancers can go and check them? Okay, I have. I can have some more made. Every time I have some DVDs made, I sell out. 
Um, but they can order from me if they contact me, and then I can, you know, run off some. Um, and they're also at the Jer- Jerome Lot. Oh, I can't talk. Jerome Robbins Dance Library in New York. They're in their archives, so they can see them there. Um, Zanzibar Dance Trance and Devotion doesn't have belly dancing. It's traditional dances of Zanzibar. I had the idea because I'm, women do belly dance also in Zanzibar. They would surprise me, like just some woman that I, I've known for a long time, a neighbor or a friend, would put on their hips, their headscarf on their hips and start dancing. I'm like, whoa, you know, it's not like they did it for performance, but they did it. So there was an interest. And there's also... Um, a men's dance, they call it Simsimea, which is very different from what we call Simsimea from Egypt. It's actually an instrument, but they have, and it's also, they say it's similar to belly dance and it's done by gay men, but I didn't get to see that. So what I did was I joined forces with the state folkloric company of Zanzibar called Kariako, and they took me to the villages and they showed what was Okay, it was interesting because they showed me their theater versions of the dances that were um, not related to belly dance, but to different cultures around Zanzibar. And they were collected in the 1970s and put on the stage. And then they took me to villages, and a lot of the villages didn't have, have these dances anymore, but some of them did with mostly older people. And so I filmed them in the villages and I just kind of followed, followed the lead of the folkloric company's directors. And it's really interesting for belly dancers, even though you don't see belly dancing because you see the reasons to belly dance or the reasons to dance in the world, such as in the early days, even in Europe or any place else in the world, a lot of dance was trans, you know, for for trance purposes. Mm-hmm. Also, devotional purposes, which is like Sufi-based dances in that in a Sufi-based movement in that film, or celebrations. So that's why I named it Dance, Trance, and Devotion. And then the Ethiopia Dances for Joy film, also nothing to do with belly dancing. I dance a little bit in it because I dance for one of the dance companies and they dance for me. Um, But when you see the dances, they're fascinating um, because they, we talked about the earth and the sky. Well, they get their chest movements from their feet. Hmm. They jump and their chests go up and down and they do a lot of shoulder shimmies and head slides, but so grounded. And I learned from the, watching Ethiopian dance this is how the Egyptians are really grounded like they their chest moves while they're doing hip movements and their chest can go up and down in a very subtle way it is coming from the feet and that's what I learned in Ethiopia because it's much more exaggerated with traditional Ethiopian dance but also Ethiopian dances for joy is um I realized that dance is so integrated with culture that I can't separate Ethiopian dance from the culture. So it shows Easter's, Easter celebrations, um, the fashion, the food, all kinds of traditions, and dance. Because if we don't know anything about a culture, it's really hard to grasp why they're dancing the way they are. Okay, next time I'm in New York, I'm definitely going to library <laughs> and get in your yeah. movies to, to watch. <laughs> um, I really regret I didn't grab uh, those DVDs that you were here in Toronto. Now I like biting my elbows. <laughs> uh, but hopefully Aww. next time, whenever <laughs> whenever see you at any festivals or whenever I'm in New York, I'm definitely gonna check mm-hmm. them. And uh, well. Uh, Damalin, I just want also to say a big thank you for taking your time and, and sharing. Like this interview, I feel 
personally, I probably will re-listen it two or three times. <laughs> There's so many, so <laughs> much really interesting information in it and so cool points. So thank you, thank you a lot for agreeing to participating in the interview and joining us on the podcast. And I always uh, wrap up every episode with the same question, and it's always very interesting to hear similarities and differences in people's uh, replies. Uh, but the question is, what makes you fall in love with ballad dance again and again, so you keep doing it for so many years? <laughs> mm. Okay. First is the music. Um, second the movement really does have some kind of magic. It, um, it moves your energy around. So if you can put that mu- movement with the music that's really the roots of the music are so old and encompass so much of history, I fell in love with it. Also the sense of community, the, it brings people together. I, people of any age, any nationality, background, There's no difference. It doesn't matter if you're beautiful or your society maybe doesn't think you're beautiful. When you dance, you're beautiful. And it um, also, it's, this is not like one short answer, but when I've been to the Middle East or even when I hear people playing Middle Eastern music, I feel like there's a certain air that you feel, like there's something special and indescribable that doesn't exist anywhere else. And I don't even know how to explain it. It's just, you know, again, it's connected, the movement, the music, that just the feeling of these places and these cultures, you know, this wide array of cultures that are really united by, by some aspect of the music. Guys, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And if you like this episode, it will mean a world to me if you take a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes or share it with your friends. Also, you can always find more information about podcast as well as past episodes at yanadance.com slash podcast. As well as you can connect with me on social media by Yana Dance or Yana Komarnitska. I'm very active on Instagram as well as Facebook and share a lot of tips and inspiration for your daily ballet dance life. And by the way, don't forget to subscribe to podcasts so you never miss a future episode. And until next time, keep shimming.